This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. What cybersecurity trends will financial services providers be focused on in 2012? As banking institutions prepare for conformance with the updated FFIEC's online authentication guidance and position themselves for new investments in enterprise-level and cross-channel fraud detection, Bill Wansley, a consultant with Booz Allen Hamilton, says they should stay focused on long-term security, not just compliance. Bill, Booz Allen recently listed its top financial services cybersecurity trends for 2012, which highlight the impacts increased mobile use and organized crime are expected to have on banks and investment firms in the coming year. Can you tell us a bit about the trends and how Booz Allen determined these to be the top 10? Sure, I'm happy to talk about this. Booz Allen has a pretty broad base of customers from the government to commercial to international clients, uh, many of whom are doing business uh, directly supporting financial services or maybe financial institutions on their own. So what we've tried to do is find a way to bring relevant awareness to the real security threats that are facing financial institutions. So based on uh, the number of jobs we've had in the past couple of years in these environments, we got together a, essentially a focus group of our experts to pull together what we saw as the emerging trends, specifically technologies, emerging trends, trends and the threats, uh, and built on our uh, experience in cyber intelligence, where we see the threats evolving to, it's a constantly evolving environment, and then looked at the regulatory environment to see how all of this would come together almost in a systematic way to provide uh, an environment that could be very risky for financial institutions going forward. So based on the discussions we had and all of those factors, we identified but the 10 financial services security trends uh, for 2012 and want to try to kind of communicate them out to executives rather than keeping these issues in the back room of the, of the security section or the information security team. We want to try to raise these issues as risk issues to executives so they fully understand and are aware of the type threats that could be affecting their institutions. And I'd be happy to go through those if you'd like to do that. Yeah, sure. I actually would like for you to go through some of those. Um, I, I have noted some of those as well. And, of course, you know, mobile was one that seemed to be a growing concern. Could you talk a little bit about mobile? Sure. Uh, mobile is a very relevant topic across all industries, but specifically financial services. In some ways, financial services have an advantage because there are, there are already very tight controls on the use of mobile devices around any trading that would happen in the market. Once you get outside the trading floor that's controlled by communications, we're finding that many employees are using their mobile devices. Many of them have, like many of us, an iPad, an iPhone, or another smartphone device, and they're using uh, different service providers that provide them clouds where their information is going so that all their devices can connect to them. So all that's terrific, and a lot of companies actually adopt bring your own technology to work now so that rather than having firm-issued laptops or other mobile devices, people are bringing their own. So there are obviously a lot of advantages to that as, as the newer generations like to bring their own devices with them, but the downside is the potential risk for the institution. So each time you have another one of these mobile devices that is not controlled through a hosted server within the corporation, you're then providing access to potentially uh, corporate information directly through these devices that don't have the kind of built-in monitoring security features that a corporate-issued device would have. So we're, that's, that's 
particularly true any place where there's the bring your own technology to work kind of policy in certain companies. But it's also true for you know, anybody who's using a, a cell phone. And in fact, you'll see a number of people walking out of banks that have their corporate cell phone, they have their personal cell phone. And while they use their personal cell phone for a personal use, oftentimes there's sensitive information that could be discussed on that as well. So the issue is not to say uh, stop using mobile devices. The issue is just asking executives to think about their policies, procedures, and what potential risks that may be bringing on to their enterprise uh, unwittingly and what they can do to help mitigate that. And there are steps you can, you can take to mitigate the mobile environment, but it has to be done in a very deliberate way with a, a little forethought and planning and operational monitoring. I did want to ask also, Bill, about protecting executives, and I think this might be a nice segue. How vulnerable are executives to spear phishing attacks and organizations when we take a step back and think about the environment today with the advent of social media and personal information basically being accessible all over the web? Organizations aren't as cushioned today as they were in the past. What can the industry do to protect itself? That's a great question. I mean, and, and frankly, social media is evolving so rapidly that Privacy controls on a number of the social media outlets are, are being updated constantly. So the good news is industry is aware that through the use, the benefits of social media are to create those broader networks of colleagues and friends that you can share information with, that you have to have some controls on privacy and access to some personal information. So back to your, your original question about executives, there, there is certainly a trend where there are some individuals um, out in the Internet who are looking at very closely who are the executives leading some of these firms. A lot of them are considered to be part of the 1%, so they're, they're sometimes targets for people looking at them. And they can be targets for a number of reasons. One, just to be, just to, uh, some, some hackers just want to embarrass CEOs and bring attention to them, uh, where they live, how they operate, uh, what their life, personal lives are like. Sometimes there is some organized criminal aspect of this where they will actually want to take and steal financial information um, for their own personal benefit. And thirdly is the group of um, foreign intelligence uh, services that may want to collect important information for business purposes for, for uh, foreign espionage. So all these three kinds of threats are potentially tracking executives, linking from social media and doing additional research and then doing as you mentioned, spear phishing attacks or other sorts of collection. What I mean collection is collecting information on the executives so that later on it could be used for another attack. Uh, most commonly known today in industry is an advanced persistent threat, which is abbreviated APT. And that is the advanced sophisticated threat that works over time to do the social engineering on executives to understand who they are, where they come from, to find those vulnerabilities, to be able to send them an email and get them to open a, an explosive package on their machine, for example. So we're, we are seeing increasing uh, trends in this area. There are executives now getting a little more concerned and getting more careful about what they're, they're placing on their social media pages. But at the same time, again, this is a manageable problem. If, if the corporations and the executives sit back and think about what the, their exposure is, do an assessment of what their exposure is, and then understand how to manage that exposure to both get both the, the, gain, the personal gain and business gain of social media without overexposing corporate information too much. And what about risk assessments, Bill? How thorough and ongoing are most risk assessments, especially when it comes to cybersecurity threats? 
I believe most institutions do a very good job uh, with risk assessments. The the challenge is, of course, the risk is changing constantly. So you have to ensure that the way in which you go about doing assessment is up to date with the latest threats and understandings and is pretty thorough across the organization. Some organizations are very centralized and the policies and procedures and controls and governance posture is very centrally controlled and it's much easier to get a, a handle on where you are. Other other global corporations are widely distributed and have very different policies across. So that takes a, a great deal more effort to ensure you know where your risks are in one part of the world versus the other part of the world. But in general, I think um, the financial services industry probably does better than most in assessing risk and uh, reporting the, that information to their chief risk officers. And I wanted to also ask about the soon-to-take-effect updated FFIEC guidance, which relate to online authentication practices. How prepared are most financial services organizations for this upcoming guidance? And when it comes to risk assessment being a key part of that, how prepared are they from a risk assessment perspective? Um, I think most major financial institutions really try to stay ahead of all guidance coming from regulators to them. So I think uh, a number of them have been expecting the FIEC guidance, and I think they're they're actually leaning forward in that area. A lot of them are exploring different technologies, different procedures. They're looking at the impact on their business and doing the kind of risk that is the kind of uh, trade-off between how is this going to affect my business and how can I put in efficient practices in place to comply with the, with the guidance. So in general, I think, they're again, they're doing pretty well. If some of the smaller institutions... Um, may not have as big a problem to deal with, they still need to take the time to assess where they are and ensure that they are ready to comply because the, the regulators will, will insist on this uh, in the very short term. Now, you've mentioned globalization, and I'd like to talk about that with the FFIEC guidance in mind because the FFIEC guidance, of course, relates to U.S. institutions, but what about the global impact of the updated FFIEC guidance what are institutions doing globally to enhance their user as well as transactional authentication practices? Well, as you might imagine, most, most of the big banks have global transactions, and they have corresponding bank relationships with other institutions. And you can imagine if you've got a, a really strong security program uh, at your home office, that might be great, but every, every day you're dealing with millions of transactions coming in from international corresponding bank relationships, different vendors, different customers, so it's, it, it really, even though it may be U.S. law, what, what we're seeing is that our U.S. guidance, U.S. and U.K. guidance dominate global financial transactions because it just drives uh, practices across the world. So I think, as, as you see, most, um, most corporate headquarters out of Washington, New York, London, um, and San Francisco looking at the impact of these kind of new guidelines, they see it as a global venture to start with, and frankly, all the foreign banks, some of which we're talking to now, realize that as uh, potential corresponding bank partners with these banks, they have to comply as well. And what about increased regulatory scrutiny generally? I'm talking about globally as well as domestically. Are financial organizations making investments in the right types of technologies and solutions to ensure that they're complying and conforming with existing as well as perhaps upcoming mandates and standards that wouldn't just affect us domestically but internationally? Sure. Well, the real challenge is the cost of technology for a financial institution is skyrocketing. A number of banks are struggling to try to get their costs under control. So there, there's this trade-off between increased efficiency and effectiveness. 
uh, and, and trying to keep your costs down moving forward. And that's why you see a lot of large institutions moving towards cloud structures, which do potentially uh, offer tremendous cost savings and efficiencies. But correspondingly, there are some new security controls that need to be in place with the cloud architecture to allow them to make those changes. I think you'll see, and as we see coming forward in the next year, a lot more questions about cloud security and about how to do that. And that's specifically to your point, that if, if, if these institutions are going to be able to continue to maintain uh, some control of their cost while, while changing uh, technologies to make uh, to satisfy regulatory requirements, they're going to have to do some evolution of the architectures into uh, public and private cloud structures that allow them to be able to do that. And, and the, the big institutions are doing that. They are now looking at it. They're thinking about how to better keep their cost under control and increase their security postures going forward. So I think you're going to see a, a, a fair amount of activity, thought leadership, and development in this area because if the banks don't maintain a control of their cost in implementing these new technologies, they're going to have a rough road ahead. And what about the public-private partnerships? You, you touched on that just a bit here. How will government get more involved in the cybersecurity effort? Well, that's a great question. Clearly, uh, the Department of Homeland Security in the United States is responsible for protecting the homeland. So there is going to be increased involvement, I believe, uh, by the the government bodies in the United States to try to protect the homeland. But in the end, most consumers believe the banks who are holding their data are the ones that are responsible for providing security of their particular financial information and personal data. But I tell you what, the uh, FSISAC is absolutely the best example of where a public-private partnership seems to be getting some traction. Uh, established a number of years ago for to, to protect the nation's critical infrastructure, the FSISAC provides that information sharing amongst the financial services institutions. Booz um, Allen is an affiliate board member. We're not a bank ourselves, but we certainly participate in that body, and we believe that's exactly the kind of body that needs to go forward to ensure that we have sufficient protection for our nation's critical infrastructures like, like the uh, financial services industry. So there are other institutions or other groups being stood up by the banks within them, so between themselves to help share information, and I believe you'll see this January new legislation coming off Capitol Hill that will actually direct some very specific sharing of information between the government and the financial services industry. So this is really a very hot topic, and I look forward, as again, 2012, seeing legislation in January coming out in this area and very specific uh, bodies like FSISAC being reinforced to share that information more broadly. And this may seem like I'm shifting gears a bit, but it actually does relate to the public-private partnerships and the need for more government right. involvement. I wanted to ask about malware. Um, you know, we talk quite a bit about spear phishing attacks and phishing attacks, and um, of course, Zeus continues to evolve and it has become um, much more prevalent throughout the world. Will we ever win the battle, Bill? No. Uh, frankly, the, the malware bug is out, and people have now realized that they can develop new malware products on a continuous basis, much like people develop, you know, iPad apps. Um, so the, the reality is we need to learn to take a risk management approach to living with malware, frankly, and that is being constantly monitoring it, constantly checking for it, constantly staying on top of how it's evolving, 
and doing our best to ensure that whatever malware is floating around the Internet and, 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 and is injected into our enterprise is something that we can manage, if, if, take out, take out if obviously is a preferred way to do it. Sometimes you need to do some real deep research to find malware because the, the groups sending malware into our institutions are becoming more and more sophisticated that create code that you can't recognize or see even with traditional security practices. So you have to go a little step beyond to be able to monitor malware. Now, one merging trend in this area is the advanced analysis of malware. And that allows you to actually take the code and re-engineer it and understand how it, how it was developed and perhaps get some indications of what could be next. And that's really important because then, that, then you at least have some insights as to what could be the next set of malware you're going to be facing in the next generation. I also wanted to ask, Bill, about insider threats. Of course, insider threats made the top ten, as well as some of the other issues that we've discussed today. Insiders are often the points of compromise, whether intentional or unintentional. Are institutions and organizations generally sufficiently addressing their internal risks? I think a lot of institutions are are aware of the, the, the potential damage of an insider threat. But mostly they've focused in the past on some malicious intent by some insider. What is a broader problem right now is the unwitting insider. In other words, that person who gets the phishing attack, who, who unwittingly gives some access to an outsider, and then they become essentially an insider. And that is, that is a concern that now is starting to get the attention of a lot of uh, bank information security officers and the bank risk officers. And that is, how do you, how do you ensure that your staff have enough awareness to be a to see when they're they are being set up as a potential unintended insider. So there there is greater attention in that area. I think through the next year you're going to see uh, additional steps taken by institutions to ensure that the training and awareness of their staff is up to a level to allow them to know when they're being made an unwitting insider. And frankly, that is very cost effective means to get to to start start stopping the problem right up front. Just make sure people are aware that that's what's happening. And before we close, Bill, what final advice can you offer to financial services organizations that are preparing for current as well as emerging cybersecurity threats? Well, the primary focus should, should really be in having a deliberate program that actually documents where the most important information in the organization is, establishes a priority system to protect the, the most sensitive and classified information because you can't protect everything. You have to accept the fact that it's cost prohibitive to have perfect security all the time. In fact, there's no such thing as perfect security. And then to think through the trade-offs, the risk trade-offs you have to make for protecting that information. And if you do that, you can, you can come up with some very cost-effective ways to manage your risk or make decisions about your business practices to manage those risks. So it doesn't have to be a large investment in technology. And that's where I see the security trends going. And I think most chief information security officers are really starting to get a little smarter about where we apply technology or where we apply non-technology solutions that just make good sense to manage risk. Bill, I want to thank you again for your time today. For my pleasure. Again, we've just heard from Bill Wansley, Senior Vice President at Booz Allen Hamilton, where he focuses on commercial, nonprofit, and governmental financial services. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. 
For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.bankinfosecurity.com.